You're listening to the Nomcast, a proud member of Forgotten Entertainment. Hello, and welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can check us out on the web at NomcastPod.com. All right, what an odd time we are in as far as the movie calendar is concerned right now. Uh, This time last year, we were spared the typical period that is widely known as Dumpuary, where studios like to drop all the films that they have very little confidence in, all in like a six to eight week period at the beginning of the year. And this time last year, we were still watching awards contenders like Malcolm and Marie, Pieces of a Woman, and The White Tiger because the Oscars got pushed back so far into 2021. But this year, unfortunately, seems like we are back to the same old dumpuary. Uh, and it seems like one of the toughest ones yet uh, that I've seen in quite some time. Nothing new really to watch at the theaters if you're comfortable with going. A few decent streaming options are starting to trickle around, but largely, it's been a struggle out there. And, of course, with this being a Netflix original movie podcast, I could say quite certainly that exciting original options have not been plentiful as of late. So, what are we going to talk about today, (laughs) right? Well... I want to talk about Home Team, the what I did on my Bounty Gate vacation movie about the now former New Orleans Saints head football coach Sean Payton starring Kevin James, uh, a quite confounding choice for a subject of a family film for sure. Uh, I'll also talk about some films coming up that we'll tackle in February, you know, maybe once we get out of this real nasty part, because uh, they include at least some projects that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival over the past week. We could talk early reactions to what Netflix brought to Sundance, as well as the documentary they acquired. And maybe I'll sprinkle in what I liked that I was able to watch at Sundance this year. And then it wouldn't be a podcast of mine this time of year if I didn't give at least a small award season update. A ton of the guilds released their nominees, including the Producers Guild and the Writers Guild, amongst many others. So we could do a quick check-in on the major Netflix film hopefuls now that the dust has settled and all the hot takes have cooled. So... Plenty of things to run down, even in a quiet part of the schedule. No guests this week, just me doing my one-man PTI impression. So right after this quick word from our friends at Forgotten Entertainment, I will dive right in to all the Netflix goodness. Be right back. Hello there, I'm Colleen. I'm Anders. And I'm Daniel. We're three nerds that met through our love of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. Of course, one of our favorites is George Lucas's signature achievement, Star Wars. And if there's one thing the internet definitely doesn't have enough of, it's nerds talking about Star Wars. So here we are with yet another Star Wars podcast, where each week we discuss one of the films in the current Star Wars canon. From the sands of Tatooine to the levels of Coruscant, we cover it all. Yet another Star Wars podcast is available wherever you get your podcast and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. 
Hey, I'm Shamar. And I'm Andrew. We're going to be doing a deep dive on all the connected DC animated movies in their cinematic universe. Yes, I'm here to discuss the interconnected storylines and point out how jacked everybody is. And I'm here to share deep comic book knowledge like Batman having his own sneaker line. So check out yet another DC animated podcast. Part of the Forgotten Entertainment family and coming soon wherever you listen to your podcast. Okay, let's start with where we are now with Netflix original films. January is now over, and thank goodness because it really wasn't doing much of anything. A lot of mediocrity, or sometimes way worse, not a lot of American productions to speak of, and when they did come out, they were mostly tough to watch and got panned by the critics. The best of January was probably Munich, The Edge of War, which we covered last episode. I enjoyed that. And The House seems to be doing well amongst critics and audiences, especially when you consider it's a stop-motion animated project, but it's also more of a miniseries with 30-minute chapters than it is a movie, per se. So I don't even know if we can count that in this conversation. But other than those, I can't really speak well for January at all, and yes, that includes Home Team, because, wow, is that a hard movie to get your head around. It is, uh, it's simply odd to think about for many reasons. Let's start from when the trailer came out, shall we? Netflix and Happy Madison dropped this thing, and most of my friends and people I follow share it saying, wow, this is a spoof trailer, right? There's no way this is real, right? And then we found out it was real, and we didn't even know what type of tone this movie was going to have or what tone it should have when you consider they made a movie about a coach who got suspended from knowingly allow a bounty system for purposely injuring opponents on his watch. But it's a Happy Madison movie with Kevin James playing Sean Payton. It has to be funny, right? Should it be? What the hell is this movie? So flash forward to watching this movie, which I did uh, on Friday, and, you know, it's got a Mighty Ducks mixed with Little Giants type story structure, but it has so little heart and charm that I don't care about any of the characters or the outcome of the games for that matter, uh, which is the exact opposite of how I felt about those other well-executed family sports films that I just mentioned. Uh, and of course, because it's Happy Madison, it also has a super weird cast um, because, you know, those, you know, those teams, Sandler and company only use like five or six mostly comedic actors uh, in their little circle of friends there and then put them in any genre of movie and think, yeah, this is fine. Uh, so, you know, I mean, you have Kevin James here playing Sean Payton and I read an article on The Ringer about how he shadowed. Sean Payton and how he described how he acts and works a room. And I think maybe a third of what he said translated into the character. He definitely got the Saints visor note, apparently, but, you know, so good on him. But doesn't really kind of capture what Sean Payton is. I don't know why they picked him overall. And then, of course, they have Rob Schneider playing a dumb hippie style character who is dating Peyton's ex-wife, who, of course, is played by Adam Sandler's real-life wife, Jackie Sandler, as she is in almost every single uh, Happy Madison comedy, especially all the Netflix ones as of late. So, you know, that is an obvious pick. And then 
you know, from there, you know, you have the Old Spice guy is a coach in here. And weirdly, the Old Spice guy, I shouldn't keep calling him that, Isaiah Mustafa, might be the best actor in here of all this. You have Taylor Lautner uh, returning after being in Ridiculous 6. And, you know, he gets basically just sidelined with, you know, pardon the pun, by uh, Kevin James's Sean Payton character and doesn't really kind of connect with either his players or with Kevin James. Like, there's really not much there at all or any reason for him to be there. So the the cast is just bizarre, top to bottom. And, and of course, the whole purpose of this movie is kind of trying to humanize Sean Payton and kind of tell this kind of like family story where he comes back and coaches his son's football team and I never really felt like they were doing a ton of like reconnecting or as soon as they would like the movie would just put his son to the side for like long stretches where it doesn't really matter and I don't know I'd be interested to know what you guys think so definitely hit us up on social media but like I don't even feel like especially for a movie that seems like it's you know signed off by Sean Payton he's in the movie you know I don't even feel like this movie even paints him in that good a light I think you know he's kind of got that you know head football coach you know disease of you know not being a very good dad or at least being an absent dad husband kind of thing and so he does this for a period of time and he goes right back to coaching so maybe he learned a lesson or two Maybe he helped a little bit of his relationship with his son. But, you know, the follow-up to this story is that this story was 10 years ago. He went right back to coaching. So I don't know what changed. I don't know what's going on. They didn't put any kind of, like, thing on the end of this movie saying, you know, they, they, they have a better relationship now or anything. And, oh, by the way, he has more than just a son. He has a daughter, too. So... I don't know. I don't know what this is supposed to mean, but I think the most interesting thing to come out of this movie for for anything is twofold. One, people are just kind of saying it's not as terrible as they thought, but that's because we all thought it was the worst thing that was going to happen to us. So I think this movie is largely getting a pass online for for how bad it actually is because, you know, because we're all kind of shell-shocked that we were like, wow, this was, like, not kind of this dreck awful movie like uh a happy madison thing like the do-over or something you know this isn't like that so you know because it wasn't cartoonishly bad so we kind of had to just go oh they took this a little more seriously so i guess we have to take it more seriously but when you take it through that lens then it's like okay well then why are there whole scenes where like the team is throwing up from you know hippie energy bars and I don't know. There's a lot of things to scratch your head about uh, in this movie, you know, in in terms of like, especially the Rob Schneider character of it all. But like, I don't know. It's very baffling. But of course, the other thing to come out is that 10 years now after the events of the movie, Sean Payton resigned this week from the Saints, uh, even though he doesn't signal kind of like an official retirement. And people are speculating based on this movie. That's right. This movie that, you know, that Peyton is leaving football for a year to take some time off from a bad situation in the Saints and then go for the uh, Dallas Cowboys job because they kind of talk about that um, because he goes back home to Texas to to teach his son's uh, football team. And 
I don't know if that's like true or whether I just don't see where this is like a happy story, you know, like, Oh, look at Sean Payton. He's, he's gonna try to go back home to Dallas so he could be closer to his family. Is that what's going on? Because I think he lost Drew Brees. I think his team is in salary cap hell. And I think now he's like, well, you know, this seems like a good time to leave. And he's leaving. He's doing it because it seems convenient to him. Which, to be honest, if you want to talk about things you glean from this movie, yeah, he pretty much does whatever's convenient for him. He went and taught his son's team because, A, he had nothing better to do, and B, because it's football coaching. It's what he wants to do. It's, you know, and if this is the only way he can kind of be around his son, okay. Is that heartwarming? I don't know. I didn't find any kind of connection there. So for everybody who's like, yeah, this is great. You know, he's kind of fulfilling this thing. And I don't know. I don't, I don't see it. I see it as just more Sean Payton doing whatever Sean Payton wants to do. Especially when you talk about a movie where Sean Payton makes a cameo in this movie and openly says to his fictional self, we really suck without you in regards to the Saints being terrible when he wasn't there for that whole 2012 season or whatever. And yeah, of course, of course, he's going to say that. And of course, everything is self-interested to Sean Payton. And of course, they don't address Bounty Gate, really. He doesn't even really take that much responsibility, you know, so that's that's how it's going to go. So right now, everything is just, it's selfish, it's weird. That movie, I, I don't know anyone who's liked it so far, so I feel like, you know, obviously I'm probably talking to a big old echo chamber right now, but man, is that movie a lot, and I will, I'll, I'll be avoiding that. So yeah, I don't consider that part of the goods from January as far as what we're talking about, but what I'd like to talk about is shifting gears to February. And, you know, again, not like the best stacked year. In past years, we've kind of had to go through, usually there's some kind of, you know, teen rom-com or something that they're going to put towards Valentine's Day. Totally makes sense. We've covered some of them in the past, you know, the two all the boys or whatever. So that's fine. I'm totally fine with that. I'm not going to, I know what you're thinking. Am I going to cover Tall Girl 2? Probably not. Never saw the first one. I don't really see it in terms of the trailer, in terms of the appeal of these movies. The other ones, at least I had some kind of affection for. So I don't think so uh, on that one. Am I also going to cover a Medea Homecoming? Uh, no, because again, Similar reasons. Never really got into the other ones. All the trailers make me, you know, roll my eyes. Not really my thing. So if that's your thing, cool. Enjoy them. If you want to let us know, like, hey, these are good. You should come check them out. Drop me a line. But I don't really think that's where this is heading for February. But some of the things I am looking forward to that I'm pretty sure we're going to cover. Uh, first and foremost, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, this movie we kind of covered in the news notes before. Uh, it's kind of like this update on the story where it flashes forward several decades in the future from the original events of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it deals with, you know, kind of almost bringing in uh, the Marilyn Chambers character from the first one back, kind of trying to do a little bit of the the Halloween reboot 
kind of thing. Uh, the the last one, the 2018 one, whatever one that was, uh, where we're bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, in this kind of like shell shocked, having to deal with her old nemesis kind of story, which doesn't quite work in my head. Um, and to be honest, what the new trailer has dropped now too this week, and um, I'm not digging it. Not digging it. Um, you know, because there's not really any kind of like character to follow through on. Uh, and then there's this one scene where Leatherface uh, confronts, I think it's a bunch of tourists or something uh, on a bus. They're all videotaping him and then mentioned something about trying to cancel him if he attacked them. Uh, ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. That is all the antithesis uh, of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, you know, to me is a masterpiece. I have the movie poster uh, in my house signed by the original Leatherface Gunner Hansen. I'm a big fan, and this did not endear itself to me with that trailer, but at least it's, you know, again, big franchise IP. It's something to look forward to, at least as far as the discussion piece. So we'll bring on, you know, Scary Larry, and we'll do it right, and we'll, we'll talk about that movie when it comes out in a couple weeks. Um, Big Bug is another movie that I'm looking forward to. It looks very strange, um, but it's kind of like, you know, a technology taking over uh, kind of a quirky, dark comedy of sorts from the same people who brought you Amelie and Delicatessen. So that one I'm definitely looking forward to. I'm, I'm going to check that one out. Hopefully we can cover that one on the podcast as well. Uh, there's a movie called My Best Friend Anne Frank, which obviously speaks to the Anne Frank, you know, Diary of Anne Frank situation um, and about her best friend who kind of like stayed in contact while Anne Frank was in hiding. And there's kind of this, you know, maybe a more sweeter uh, version of that story while still, you know, kind of confronting the reality of what was going on. So I'm interested in that. That actually comes out, uh, if you're listening to this, on the night of release. It came, came out on February 1st. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. Um, that is a worldwide Netflix film, except for in the Netherlands. So uh, definitely uh, look out for us. Maybe talk about that next week. Maybe we'll dive into that. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff there. Also, now to kind of pivot to what I've been kind of doing for the last week, the Sundance Film Festival has been going on for the last week. And I watched about five films because, again, I'm not uh, made of money, so I didn't have like the full thing. And uh, it's not like I was accredited press. So I kind of dipped my toe in and Netflix, you know, had a few things that were there, which I did not watch. So apologies. You're not going to get any big insights from me. Mostly be I'll explain the one of them in a minute. But there were two documentaries that Netflix showcased at Sundance, both getting actually pretty strong reviews. The first one is Downfall, the case against Boeing. Uh, I saw a lot of positive reviews popping up on film Twitter as people were covering uh, the Sundance Film Festival going along. And, you know, the the ratings on IMDb is currently at 7.0 and the Metascore is at 62%. Um, so, you know, it's doing okay thus far. It's not blowing anyone's doors off, but I've seen some some quite positive reviews across the board with that one. Uh, this is the uh, story that examines the months 
since the tragedies which caused global panic in March of 2019 after two new aircrafts crashed within five months, uh, killing 346 people. So that seems terrifying, and I know it's uh, kind of a frustrating story for a lot of people to watch. So I'm sure, like many documentaries, it's not an easy sit, but it is something that is worth watching, and I'm seeing a lot of critical praise uh, for that one. So check that one out. That is coming out on February 18th. So we got a couple weeks for that. The more buzzier one that was there is called Genius, a Kanye trilogy, which is, of course, as the title suggests, uh, follows the life of Kanye West and an intimate portrayal as he builds his way from singer to businessman and becomes a global brand. That sounds kind of a reductive synopsis for this project. I mean, to me, it sounded very cool because this guy, uh, Cootie, uh, took footage from him back when, you know, Kanye was very young, just, uh, you know, starting on the come up in Chicago and has filmed him many, many times over the years and kind of created this, you know, timeline for how much Kanye has changed and evolved as time progresses so we don't usually get this kind of an intimate portrayal and I think it's really resonating with a lot of people who you know like Kanye like uh, music documentaries and find that you know way more interesting and the structure that's coming out uh, which is why I don't know if we're fully going to cover I'm probably going to watch it we'll probably at least mention it on the podcast but it's going to come out in three installments starting on February 16th, where it'll have three hour and a half segments, uh, kind of like their own individual movies or chapters of Kanye's life in this trilogy. So that's one of the reasons why I didn't try to seek it out when I was at Sundance, because, you know, either I watch four and a half hours of Kanye or I could watch, you know, a couple other like main titles, even probably considering how a lot of Sundance films are, I could probably almost squeeze in three uh, in that timeline. So I was, uh, I spent my time, you know, trying to spread it out, see a little things that maybe aren't Netflix. So that way I can kind of broaden my horizons. But Genius, a Kanye trilogy is definitely something that got a lot of positive reviews. It currently has an 8.2 on IMDb. So this definitely got a lot of praise from, from people I saw across the board. So definitely looking forward to that. Um, While the festival was going on, Netflix and the Obama's Higher Ground Productions also acquired a documentary, uh, award-winning documentary that won special jury prize for Creative Vision. This movie is called Descendant, a film about the members of Africatown, a small community in Alabama, as they share their personal stories and community history as descendants of the Clotilda, uh, which is the last known slave ship to illegally transport human beings as cargo from Africa to America. So a lot of a big chunk of this country's history, uh, obviously dark history to go with the ship's existence. A centuries old open secret is confirmed by a team of Marine archeologists. And obviously the film follows kind of the fallout of that and what that means and and really kind of, you know, gives a little extra to their stories that they've already been, you know, sharing over the years. So, uh, again, another documentary that did really well at the festival, 
currently has a 7.2 rating on IMDb. Uh, I've seen a lot of positive reviews around, again, on like film Twitter and, and, and critics that uh, attended the festival and watched it. So definitely something that uh, is perfect for Netflix and the Obamas that it fits right in with what they like to try to display on this platform. Um, and I wouldn't be shocked if you saw that come out uh, next month as well for uh, Black History Month. Um, but we'll see. They might pocket this one and push it maybe further down the line uh, when it is maybe a more advantageous spot for award season. Uh, so we'll see if this is how that one's going to go. You know, it's a little bit different than, say, like the Crypt Camp thing uh, that the Obamas had at Sundance a couple of years ago and ended up, you know, going a little farther into award season. But it came out so early on. It came out almost immediately after Sundance uh, happened. So that was a little bit different. But definitely this is one to keep your eye on as the year moves on and we get maybe into late season award season for 2022. But like I mentioned, I did actually watch <laughs> a bunch of movies at Sundance. So if you don't mind, be a little self-indulgent, but it could be a cool little exercise to tell you what I did and didn't like uh, for the movies that I did check out at Sundance this year. And maybe, you know, it'll be something that you can kind of bookmark for later in the year as something that you may want to check out uh, as we progress throughout the year. Because um, some of these might be coming sooner than you think. A lot of these have distribution already, so let's get right to it. The first one I wanted to highlight was my favorite thing that I saw at Sundance this year. The movie's called Cha-Cha Real Smooth. It's uh, a dramedy about a young man who works as a bar mitzvah party host who strikes up a friendship with a mother and her autistic daughter. This is written, directed, and starring Cooper Rafe, whose previous film Shithouse won the grand jury prize at South by Southwest a couple years ago. Yeah, this guy knows how to title a movie. Um, Lost Daughter star Dakota Johnson plays the mother of the autistic daughter here, and she is just so damn captivating throughout this whole movie. And it's basically a story of two lost souls finding each other at an inopportune time and trying to navigate, you know, what is right for them at this stage of their lives. And it's essentially a coming of age story that lets its audience know that there is no set deadline for such a coming of age. It has so much heart. It's fun. It's endearing. And honestly, it did that old poster quote cliche of me making me laugh and cry with the same film. Uh, I liked it so much. Uh, and Though I am sad that this will not be a Netflix film uh, this year, I am glad that people will be able to see this film on Apple TV Plus later on this year. So if you see a release date or see it's coming up, I highly recommend that you check this movie out. It was easily an A-A score for me, uh, which doesn't happen very often. This was by far the best thing I saw, uh, not only at Sundance, but so far this year, for sure. The next one I wanted to highlight was the best documentary I saw at Sundance this year, and that is Navalny. It's uh, an, an intense, 
investigative documentary from CNN and HBO Max about the political opponent to Vladimir Putin, Alexei Navalny, who is poisoned with a lethal nerve agent by operatives working for Putin. This is all true, everybody, and survives to not only tell the tale, but also tracks down and confronts his attackers. It's extremely well constructed with all kinds of you know, political intrigue, as well as some amazing scenes during kind of the inquisition of one of the co-conspirators in the assassination plot. It's wild that this happened, and I didn't know about it. Uh, it's so well worth the watch. Uh, one of the best docs I've seen in a while, for sure. Uh, definitely recommend it when it drops on HBO Max. The next film I wanted to talk about was called Jane. Uh, this is a film shot not far from where I live here in Connecticut. Shout out to Synthetic Cinema International for producing what is an extremely polished film uh, based around an extremely delicate topic, uh, which is abortion in this country. The story centers around a married woman played by Elizabeth Banks who has an unwanted pregnancy in the time uh, when abortion is not yet legal. And she works with this underground collective of suburban women called the Janes who find help for women in need. And it's based on a true story. In fact, there was also a documentary about the Janes at Sundance this year. So you can check out their story in multiple different ways if you so choose. Uh, this also has a scene-stealing supporting performance from Sigourney Weaver that I quite enjoyed. I haven't seen her in this meaty of a role in quite a while, probably not since uh, the USA show Political Animals, and that's like a decade old now. So, you know, it's really great to see her. Um, you know, she's she's one of my favorite all-time actresses, and it's good to see her back in some kind of prominent role, and, you know, that's not Avatar, I guess. Um, I don't think this film has received distribution yet, but I would definitely recommend it when it does come out to a wider audience. It's a very timely story considering some of the current climate on the subject, and weirdly, it has a lighter touch than you may think for such a he heavy subject. Uh, so check out Call Jane when it comes around near you. Uh, the next film I wanted to highlight is After Yang, uh, which is a very slow and methodical film about grief, memory, and what it means to be a part of this world. It's by the writer-director Koganada, whose last film, Columbus, was also a critical success. Uh, this one, After Yang, is set in a plausible near future where lifelike androids exist. And for this particular family, the android Yang plays kind of a pivotal role as a an Asian older sibling type to the adopted young daughter who is also Asian and, you know, really tries to be kind of this connection point to her cultural heritage and language. And, and it's an interesting dynamic that they have and they become quite close. And at the beginning of the film, Yang malfunctions and the father played by Colin Farrell scrambles for a way to repair him. And kind of in that process, he discovers uh, memories that Yang has been storing in his database and he uses them to discover kind of hidden pieces of his own life and sees the world through Yang's eyes and kind of uses them to help him reconnect to his own family and you know ground kind of his own existence and 
I like this film for, you know, kind of these many scenes that discuss various meditations on life and what we take for granted. But ultimately, I felt at arm's length with the film for a lot of it. Its pacing can also make for a tough watch if you aren't in the right headspace, uh, for sure. And in the end, it's a soft recommendation for me. I was very hyped to see this one. I was a little let down, but it definitely has unique style and vision and fits in quite well with A24's catalog. So I'm sure it will do well in their very capable hands. I wouldn't be shocked if this one, even though obviously I'm I'm giving it a soft recommendation, uh, that it ends up in some kind of like at least more independent awards as as the year progresses, maybe at the end of this year in, in the uh, Indie Spirits or or something to that effect. And and maybe, who knows, maybe more. We'll see. Maybe uh, a larger audience will, will put their arms around this one more than I did. Um, and the last film is the directorial debut from Jesse Eisenberg, who a lot of people would know uh, from, you know, Justice League or uh, The Social Network, of course. And this movie uh, is quite difficult. Uh, it was a quite difficult watch that pushed a lot of my buttons uh, with multiple characters that, honestly, not to be too harsh, I would rather jump in front of a bus than hang with for 90 minutes. Um, Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard, two actors who I, I enjoy in other projects. Um, you know, Finn Wolfhard, of course, is from Netflix's Stranger Things. And it's a film, they star in this film about a mother and son who are essentially seeking replacements for each other as they don't quite connect with each other in the present. The mother tries to help, you know, a young man who is staying at the domestic abuse shelter uh, that in which she runs and the son who is kind of this burgeoning musician with a following online spends most of the movie trying to impress and seek the attention of this politically motivated and more scholarly young woman from his school. And I spent most of this film cringing quite honestly and being quite annoyed. And I found it incredibly hard to be invested in two, you know, borderline insufferable people uh, who think they deserve better or strive to be better for certain people who don't want their attention and then try to come around in the third act when it tries to be this more delicate and emotional ending that I basically felt was kind of unearned. And unfortunately, you know, Jesse Eisberg making his direct directorial debut here, and I felt it really kind of showed. Um, so a hard pass on this one. Uh, I believe that is also an A24 film, so I probably won't be receiving a Christmas card from them this year. Uh, that's for sure. But yeah, definitely a hard pass on when you finish saving the world. But let's wrap up this pod with some largely good news on the awards front, shall we? Uh, as noted on the top of the episode, a lot of nominations came out this past week from several of the guilds. And a lot of these nominations and awards from these bodies are very strong precursors and predictors for later Oscar success. Uh, we kind of talked about that with the SAG Awards, which came out recently as well, the nominees for that. So I wanted to recap how the big Netflix films fared, and what that may mean for them as this award season moves forward. Uh, first up, Power of the Dog. 
uh, you know, obviously it's a film that's kind of been the number one for Netflix, the biggest push as far as like potential best picture winner. Um, and I felt it, it really held serve. It had nominations from the Producers Guild, which is big. Um, you know, it was up for best picture from them. It also received uh, a DGA nomination for Jane Campion, the Directors Guild. It also got uh, a nomination from the ASC, uh, the Cinematography Guild there. Um, and, and that's huge for them, too, because the more that they can get undercard, uh, you know, nominations, the the beefier their resume looks for a potential Best Picture win. Um, the only thing that people are going to point to, of course, is that they did not get a Writers Guild nomination, but they were actually ineligible. Uh, Jane Campion is not a member of that guild, so therefore she couldn't receive, you know, Best Adapted Screenplay nomination from them this year. So all in all, very positive news. Uh, they also received an Ace Eddie, uh, the editing awards as well. So definitely a very strong showing for a movie that's already in kind of one of the top, I'd say, two or three films uh, that have real potential to win Best Picture this year. The next film, Don't Look Up, uh, definitely held serve with a lot of the strengths that this has as well. Uh, Producers Guild nomination for, for Best Picture from them, uh, WGA nomination for Original Screenplay, uh, and also an Ace Eddie's uh, nomination in the comedy category. So a very strategic and smart positioning from Netflix to put them in the comedy category. So this conversation keeps going and it makes their resume even better as they try to, you know, move up the ranks in terms of uh, Best Picture nominees and really kind of cementing that nomination as this goes forward. Um, Tick, Tick, Boom had a very good day. Uh, and in fact, this is probably the movie that I heard on most Oscar pundit podcast going, wow, look at Tick, Tick, Boom. It's really kind of, I thought they were, you know, on the outside looking in with, you know, the best picture nomination. They really kind of solidified it. And um, all I'd like to say to them is welcome to the party because I've been saying this for months now. Um, so <laughs> their big day uh, was highlighted by a PGA nomination for best picture, uh, a WGA nomination, Writers Guild nomination for adapted screenplay um which nobody really thought i honestly think that's more of a byproduct of who was an ineligible um but you know it's still a strong so showing that they were like kind of like either knocking on the door or you know maybe they think it's better uh script wise than a lot of people have as far as this year has gone thus far and they also got a DGA nomination for first time director for Lin-Manuel Miranda and they got an Ace Eddie's uh, the editing guild nomination for the comedy category as well same as Don't Look Up so again another strategic move to kind of make them seem you know like that they have the type of resume that's going to lock them in for a best picture nomination at the Oscars. So Tick, Tick, Boom had a very good day. All these films had very good days and kind of cement their their place at the top of the nomination board uh, when it comes to Best Picture. And the one film that I think maybe had a slight 
problem was the lost daughter. Now, I've said for a while that I think the strongest categories for the lost daughter is adapted screenplay and, of course, best actress for Olivia Coleman. And unfortunately, on a day like today, you know, the, the best they could have done was get a PGA nomination, um, you know, where it makes it, wow, maybe it does have a chance uh, to kind of move up into, uh, you know, a best picture nomination. Um, that did not happen. Um, they did not get an ace eddies for the editing. Um, and big thing for them is that they also did not get a WGA nomination, the Writers Guild, for adapted screenplay because they were also ineligible, just like Jane Campion with Power of the Dog. And gosh, that hurts. Because if you don't have all these other things and one of your strengths doesn't come through because you're ineligible, God, that would have been much bigger, a much bigger help. And also it would help people who are Oscar pundits and and the like who are really invested in uh, this Oscars conversation to really kind of know if they're going to be nominated when it comes uh, to nomination day and, or when it comes to the Oscars this year. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I still thought they were pretty high. I still think they're in good position for that. But now this kind of clouds it up a little bit. Um, and it really could, they really could have used some help to be quite honest. And yeah, I think this kind of knocks them a little further back in the conversation, which, you know, might hurt uh someone like Olivia Coleman overall uh in terms of you know people seeing the movie and kind of really championing this performance so you know it's tough momentum is always weird to kind of see when it comes to uh award season it's kind of like in sports is like does momentum exist you know that kind of thing but in this case obviously the lack of you know, nominations on a big day when there's so many different uh, guilds recognizing people, then that really is going to hurt your chances. And, you know, something like Being the Ricardos, which is a film that I didn't enjoy, but, you know, it's being talked everywhere. It's a film that got PGA, WGA, you know, and uh, it's just going to kind of dominate the conversation a little bit and maybe move Nicole Kidman ahead of Olivia Coleman, and that's how some of these dominoes fall. So it's an interesting year, mostly good news for Netflix uh, uh, over this past week in terms of their films and nominations. Uh, we will see. We got BAFTA coming up, the British uh, Film Awards, and and then, of course, the actual Oscar nominations uh, coming up very soon as well. So as you know, I do a lot of these updates, you know, seemingly almost weekly. So definitely stay tuned to this podcast and hear kind of like our recaps and, and analysis as these things go. Cause yeah, it's coming around. It's, you know, the Oscars are next month and, and we're all going to see, you know, some of these nominations turns into wins and really kind of shaping, uh, the Oscar, pool as it were so keep listening to this podcast for all that if you're into that kind of conversation and definitely you know hang with us we we, we got a lot of stuff that we went over today some stuff in february you know of all different types that you know if you're watching come listen along with us and and definitely 
keep with us as this cool movie year of 2022 progresses. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye.